0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas Podcast Series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome to this Sydney Ideas lecture by uh, Professor Ayan Akda from Bilgi University and Istanbul while I turn off my mobile. My name is Dirk Moses from the Department of History at the University of Sydney, and I'm chairing proceedings this evening. Uh, Professor Akhtar studied sociology at Bosphorus University and then worked at Marmara University in Istanbul until 2006. He then moved to the Department of Turkish and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Cyprus, before returning in 2010 to Istanbul, where he's a professor at Bilgi University. and I visited him there a few years ago. Professor Akhtar is one of Turkey's most senior and important social scientists. He was, among many of his achievements, he was the first to address the discrimination and assimilation and forced migration of Turkish minorities during the late Ottoman and Republican periods in Turkey. His books include, and i use the English version, Wealth Tax and Turkification Policies from 2000, a study of the notorious anti-minority tax of 1942-43, which is based on field work and British and US diplomatic correspondence of the period. Another book is called Turkish Nationalism, Non-Muslims and Economic Transformation from 2006, and also editions of various wartime diaries by Armenians and Greek citizens. His most recent intervention is the edition of the memoirs, the forgotten, until now forgotten memoirs, of Captain Sarkis Tarossian, who was an Armenian artillery officer in the Ottoman army during the First World War. It was these memoirs uh, and remains controversial in Turkey, because many were surprised and could not believe that Armenians served in the Ottoman army. This diary and Professor Akhtar's introduction uh, led to more than 90 newspaper articles and books in Turkey and some in English, as well as an edited volume about this debate. Uh, As we heard in his paper in the history department yesterday, uh, this debate led to a whole strand of new research about minority participation in the Ottoman army, whether Armenian, Greek, or Jewish. Professor Akhtar is in Australia as a fellow of the National Library of Australia in Canberra. and We are grateful that he's come up to Sydney to deliver this lecture on the related First World War topic of Turkish Gallipoli commemoration. His title is Battlefields of Memory, Contested Narratives of the Gallipoli Campaign in Turkey. Thank you very much. Ayan. Thank you very much,
0: Dirk. I'm flattered, actually. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, it is indeed a great pleasure to be at University of Sydney. I also thank to my dear friend, Dirk Moses, for inviting me to this beautiful campus. I also want to express my gratitude to the National Library of Australia for selecting me as one of the fellows in 2017. Without their generous support, I wouldn't have the opportunity to come to this country. Today I shall talk about remembrance and collective memory. I shall try to illustrate how how an important episode in our common history, I mean the battles of Gallipoli in 1915, remembered and commemorated in Turkey today. Uh, Furthermore, I shall try to show you that how Turkish Islamist politicians simply imitated the Anzacs in improving their alternative forms of commemoration to challenge the dominant secular nationalism. I'm sure some of you coming to this lecture hall uh, questioned the exact meaning of my title, Battlefields of Memory. Why are we talking about clash or contest between different types of narratives? To tell the truth, I'm coming from a country where there is an unbelievable social change And in sociological terms, the old social classes are shaken in terms of their relative ease and comfort in reaching state funds. And there are newly emerging middle classes politically attaching themselves to the ruling Justice and Development Party of President Erdogan. The emerging urban middle classes, or newcomers, as you say, if you want, are questioning everything, or to put it more politely, every dominant explanation which was set forth in the early days of the Turkish Republic. And they tried to transform these things into Islamic lines. Now let me try to establish the context of historiography of Gallipoli battles during the, early years, the founding, early years of the Republic. Founding fathers of the Turkish Republic were coming from urban middle classes. They were mostly army officers, professionals or bureaucrats of the late Ottoman regime. Among them, members of the commercial bourgeoisie was extremely limited, a very tiny minority. Most of them were born between 1875 and 1890. They completed their political socialization under the oppressive regime of Abdulhamid II. They felt the international pressures exercised on Uh, Ottoman Empire at that time, and uh, if one reads their memoirs, uh, it is impossible not to recognize their existential anxieties, even in their childhood years. They were aware of of the fact that they were born in a crumbling empire. Using the famous cliché of Tsar Nicholas I, uttered to describe the Ottoman Empire in 1853, They were the subjects of a state called the sick men of Europe. Similar to their Russian counterparts, the Ottoman intellectuals were radicalized in schools established by Sultan Abdulhamid II. Soon, they became the enemies of the regime and enemies of the Sultan. They were forming their first revolutionary organization the Imperial Medical School in 1889. Later, they got organized in the military academy. The young officers who became backbone of the young Turk regime were also influenced by the renewed curriculum and the teaching methods introduced by the German officers at that time. Uh, General von der Goltz, a German military advisor to the Ottoman Empire, uh, came to uh, uh, Istanbul in 1890s and changed the old system of instruction in the military academy. Then he introduced the Prussian tradition of Ottoman officers and the Allies had to see them at Gallipoli. Ideologically speaking, young Turks were the product of French Revolution. The slogans of French Revolution, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, turned out to be their motto as well. They wanted to establish a constitutional monarchy and have the Parliament functioning in order to limit the powers of the Sultan. Some of them went to exile in London and Paris. They published newspapers to oppose the Abdul Hamid regime and influenced the uh, European public opinion. In July 1908, the radical army officers staged an armed uprising in Macedonia and the old Sultan uh, could not yield the pressure. He agreed to open up the Parliament. And uh, they started the second constitution period in the Ottoman Empire. The rule of young Turks first softly started as a tutelary democracy. They were controlling the government. They were not in the government. But later, in January 1913, they made a coup d'etat in Istanbul. And one of the bloodiest dictatorships of Turkish history has started. Losing Balkan Wars of 1912-13 had created a trauma among the, young Turks, among the young Turks. At the end of Balkan Wars, the Ottoman state forced to give up 83% of its European territory and 69% of its population, population living in Europe in less than a month. Many of the young Turks, including Lieutenant Colonel Mustafa Kemal, later Atatürk, were coming from Balkan provinces. He was from Salonika. This was one of the psychological reasons why the Ottoman officers fiercely defended their country during the Gallipoli campaign. For them, uh, today's Turkey was the last piece of land they could hold on. After the Balkan wars, the influx of more than 250,000 refugees, Muslims coming from the Balkans, changed the demographic uh, composition of many cities. But it also contributed to the consolidation of anti-minority sentiments among the young Turks. Again, the catastrophic defeat of Balkan wars enabled the ideology of Turkish nationalism to spread up to the masses. Starting from 1912, the blossoming of nationalist publications really shaped the ideological position of the urban middle classes in Turkey. Political wing of young Turks, the Committee of Union and Progress, pushed the country into war after securing an alliance with the imperial Germany in October 1914. Here I do not want to go into the details of uh, military history. I rather concentrated on the social outcomes of the war and the nature of nation-state formed after 1923. The war years offered golden opportunities for the nationalist young Turks. Especially their ambition of forming an ethnically homogeneous state seemed to be a feasible solution at that time. It was war. Nobody could intervene to them. Instead of cooperating with their Armenian uh, political elite in forming a working uh, egalitarian regime for the non-Muslims in Turkey at that time, they chose to implement a malicious plan by accusing their long-time political allies, I mean the Armenians, as being traitors, they claimed that the Armenian revolutionaries were organizing an armed uprising against government and collaborating with the invading, invading Russian army. Starting from 25th or 24th of April 1915, more than one million Ar- Anatolian Armenians were deported to Syrian deserts, and most of them were massacred on the road. The cruel policy of extermination, portrayed by the CUP, pronounced as a security measures to safeguard the comfort. Political organ of the Young Church, CUP administration, actually won the battles at Gallipoli in the beginning Palestine and Iraqi front, could. Uh, but they lost the war at the end, in 1918. This time, the Allied Navy passed from the Dardanelles and entered to Istanbul without any obstruction. They laid their anchors in front of the palace. The plans of partition of Anatolia triggered the national resistance. Formerly a young Turk, but an ardent adversary of the CUP leadership, Mustafa Kemal Pasha, had all the backing of the nationalist elite in Turkey, defeating the Greek occupation forces in 1922. The new regime buried the Ottoman Empire and Caliphate to history and formed a new nation state. During the Lausanne negotiations, which determined the future of the country, uh, they decided to make an exchange of populations with Greece. One to point, 1.2 million Anatolian Greeks were exchanged with 400,000 Muslims living in Greece at that time. This was the first ethnic cleansing negotiated by the diplomats in history. The extermination of Anatolian Armenians and the population exchange altered The demographic uh, structure of the country. According to 1906 uh, population census done by the Ottoman administration, uh, the uh, 20 percent of the uh, people uh, living in Ottoman Empire were non-Muslims. But if you take the figures of 1927 population census, which was done by the Republican regime, uh, this was reduced to 2.5%, 1 in 40 persons. Uh, this was <coughs> uh, a Turkification of the population within 10 years, from 1912 to 1922. Uh, at least on religious lines. Sociologically, the departure of Greeks and Armenians from Turkey meant that the most productive elements of the population and good deal of entrepreneurial know-how left the country for good. Thus, according to Charles Keber, a Turkish uh, economist, during the ten years of the war, most of Turkey's commercial class was eliminated when the re- uh, republic was formed. The founding fathers of the republic uh, found themselves, themselves unchallenged politically uh, in, in that period. Uh, Having achieved a homogeneous population, at at least on religious lines, the founding fathers of the republic decided to uh, Turkify nearly every aspect of social and economic life in Turkey. Years ago, I made this definition, tentative definition, in order to explain Turkification. You know, every aspect of life, including the history teaching schools, was Turkified. After 20 years I find the definition remains correct but quite simplistic in the light of recent scholarship developed in Turkey and elsewhere. Now I believe one of the essential features of the Turkification process is the conversion of the country into fatherland. Uh, this was made possible by attempting to create a feeling of authenticity among masses. In other words One of the most important dimensions of Turkification policies was the aim to convert Turkish geographical territory and history into something exclusively Turkish. Uh, One of the problematic issues of modern Turkish historiography, history writing, is the Turkification of Ottoman history. Nationalist historians of the Republican period consistently tried to present the Ottomans as ethnic Turks. Uh, Modern Turkish national identity, which was constructed after the Balkan Wars, after 1913, and shaped during the early years of the Kemalist regime, is extended backwards in official Turkish historiography. Thus, the Ottomans were integrated into a last thousand years of Turkish history in an ostensibly seamless manner as Turks. Since 1930s, there have been few turning points in the process of rewriting history of Gallipoli campaign. As to be expected, the military of the First World War was the epicenter of this Turkification process. Here, the Ottoman Imperial Army, the Turkish Osmanlı Ordusu) was converted into Turkish army, by historians. Hence, the other ethnic groups, such as Kurds, Arabs, Sikassins, Albanians, Georgians, and religious minorities such as Greeks, Armenians, and Jews who were drafted to the army in 1914 and fought on several fronts were not mentioned or were treated as non-existent. If we take the story of Armenian soldiers in the Ottoman army during the First World War as an example, it is a generally accepted platitude that Armenian soldiers drafted to the Ottoman army were first dispatched to the labor battalions and later masked en masse. Recently published official memoirs and the files discovered in the Ottoman archives in Istanbul suggest that these sweeping generalizations require a good deal of fine-tuning. Having signed the secret treaty with Germans on the 2nd of August, next day, and Pasha, the minister of war, declared mobilization. The law of conscription changed in 1909 and Armenian men within the age group of 20 to 45 were also called in arms and they obeyed. However, a week later, Minister of Interior sent a circular to all provinces <coughs> saying that a non-Muslim men to be assigned to non-armed service. Hence, the notorious labor battalions were formed where the soldiers were supposed to build roads, dig trenches open up railway tunnels and fulfill some routine work related to the logistics of the army. After the collapse of the Caucasus Front after Sarikamish defeat, which is the Christmas of 1914, these poor Armenian soldiers were treated as the enemy within and subjected to deportations first and later massacres. However, the treatment of Armenian soldiers and officers differed considerably according to the unit they have been in the Eastern Front, in the Caucasus Front, yes. Many terrible things happened. And a detailed testimony on the massacres of Armenian soldiers was published uh, by Vehip Pasha, who was the head of Third Army, you know, Caucasus Front, in the Ottoman press in 1918. However, this was not the case for all units. Many of the non-Muslim soldiers were fighting in combat units in the Fifth Army, uh, at Gallipoli until the notorious circular of Enver Pasha was received uh, in the first uh, days of March. The commanding officer of the uh, Third Army Corps at Gallipoli Penelis Isaac Pasha asked his staff to disarm the Armenians and employ them in the army workshops without bothering or treating them badly. In his circular, 5th of March 1915, such underlined the fact that Armenian soldiers within the Third Army Corps were less than 3% of the total soldiers. At that time, the number of total soldiers in that Gallipoli uh, 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 Peninsula was 34,500. If you take 3% of that, you reach to a, a figure, 1,000 Armenian soldiers were drafted and active. And if you add Greeks and Jews, having the same proportion, then you get something like 10% of the army defending Gallipoli were composed of non muslim minorities. Uh, The story of the Arabs are very interesting too, which was not much mentioned. We know the law passed in 1909, put a kind of a regional conscription system. I mean, if you are born in Aleppo, you are drafted in Aleppo. And you serve with your friends. If you are born in Aleppo, you do. You are not sent to Erzurum or anywhere else. You are in that same military unit. And, uh, interestingly, uh, Mustafa Kemal's division, the famous 19th division, which stopped the Anzacs on the 25th of April, had three regiments, 57, 77, and 72. 77 and 72 were guys from Aleppo, and they didn't understand Turkish either, they were Arab speaking, they couldn't take the orders, and they panicked in the first day, and among the top brass at Gallipoli front, that famous division is known to be Aleppo division in Turkish Halep In spite of the fact that Ottoman Imperial Army was basically multi-ethnic and multi-religious army, the secular national's historiography perceived and presented it as the Turkish army. The military history unit, located under the chief of staff in Ankara, finally published the official history of Gallipoli battles in three volumes between 1978-1993. and 1993. Keeping in mind that Charles Bean published History of Anzac in 1921, and British General Cecil Aspinel-Oglander published the British official version military operations in Gallipoli, 1928 and 32. Turks were at least 50 years late in presenting their official version of the story. If it is read carefully, the Turkish official history, history is a bad imitation of the Australian and British accounts. Interestingly, in glorifying the role of Lieutenant Colonel Mustafa Kemal and putting him to the center of the stage, and neglecting the role of German military personnel, these three accounts are in complete agreement. In sum, the secular nationalist narrative, developed in the early years of the Republic, presented Gallipoli battles as the Turkish army defending the fatherland against invading great powers and their colonies. The British, French, and the Anzacs were the enemy, but not the infidel. The German allies of the Ottomans were either not mentioned, or mentioned as an incapable bunch of officers who had also some colonial aspirations on Turkey. The backbone of Islamic narrative, i.e. the Muslims coming all over the Islamic world, defending the house of Islam against the infidel, was never mentioned. Now, how do we have it? Starting from the 1920s, there has been an Islamist narrative operating in the undercurrent in opposing to the secular nationalists, the Council of Gripoli. Although this was mostly expressed in literary works like poetry, but it's not mentioned at all in the uh, history proper, and this group never published anything as their history. The first, maybe the most powerful example of this literature, is the poem titled To the Martyrs of Çanakkale, Çanakkale Şehitlerine, by Islamist poet Mehmet Akif Ersun. The lyrics of the Turkish national anthem belongs to him. Published in 1924, it clearly portrays the Gallipoli campaign as a resistance of the army of the Muslim against the infidel. This powerful poem in 84 lines is divided into three sections. Beginning, Mehmet Akif describes the scale of the war by underlying the intensity of the attack. I mean, uh, were there anything like the Dardanelles War, uh, war, the Earth mighty armies pressing Marmara? And at the end, oh, what a dishonorable gathering. After this introduction, Mehmed Akif goes on describing both sides, especially underlying the multi-ethnic, multi-national characteristics of the invading armies. Here, the poet depicts the whole Western civilization is a belligerent force and arguing that it is attacking the house of Islam with its colonial allies. I mean, peoples of seven climates marching in unison, Australia goose with Canada, different faces, languages, skin colors, everything so different but the mindless ferocity. Some warriors are Hindu, some African, some nameless, unknown. This the disgraceful invasion, baser than the Black Death. Uh, here we should under, uh, underline the fact that Turkish nationalism was very really late in entering to the stage. It was late, and it was a political ideology uh, borrowed and imported from France. As Leah Grenfeld argues in her book titled Nationalism, Five Roads to Modernity, the act of importing the idea of a nation is essentially an act of imitation. Here, importing, imitating part perceives inherent superiority uh, of the already existing nationalist society and tries to become like it by importing and internalizing the idea of the nation. Uh, Grenfell's argues, quote, because of the model was superior to the imitators in latter's own perception, its being a model implied that, and the contact itself more often than not served to emphasize the latter's inferiority, the reaction commonly assumed as form of ressentiment. The ressentiment is a uh, term, it's not resentment, I use the French version, uh, first suggested by Nietzsche, and, later, redefined by Max Scheler. The sentiment refers to a psychological state resulting from suppressed feelings of envy and hatred, existential envy, and the impossibility of satisfying these feelings. In certain forms of nationalism, certain types of nationalism, especially the Russian one, uh, where indigenous cultural and political resources were absent or insufficient, Ressentiment becomes the single most important factor in determining the specific terms of national identity defined in those countries. Uh, wherever it existed it, fo- existed, it fostered particularistic pride and xenophobia, providing emotional nourishment for the nascent national sentiment and sustaining it whenever it faltered. Reading Uh, Mehmed Akif's poem dedicated to the martyrs of Gallipoli, we feel the density of ressentiment and that is very much explicit in the poem. Here, all Western civilization with its armies attacking Gallipoli portrayed as the Christian civilization and their ultimate target was invading the Muslim lands. Uh, Mehmed Akif criticizes Western civilization whose main drive is colonization of Muslim lands. The Turks, who supposedly lack the arms, ammunition, and other material means, uh, you know, they defended their land against the infidel armies. They simply hold on their religious sentiments. Look at these uh, uh, lines. I mean, who who needs skilled fortresses? Who fears the enemy? How can the shield of faith not prevail? What power can make religious men bow down to their oppressors when their stronghold is established by God? The mountains and the rocks are bodies of martyrs. For the sake of of a crescent, oh God, many sons set undone. At the end, it says, the prophet awaits you now, his arms flung wide open to save. This is something for the uh, martyrs. In order to praise the courage and determination displayed by the Ottoman officers, Mehmed Akif relates them to Kuluch Aslan of the Seljuk Sultanate, who was victorious in the crusade of 1100, uh, 1101, and Saladin of Ayubi dynasty, who liberated uh, Jerusalem. You know, uh, goes on, you who stopped the onslaught of the last crusaders and goes on, you who took the iron cage hemming Islam in and shattered into pieces on your own strong breast. In the final section, Mehmed Akif glorifies the idea of martyrdom in such a way that he proposes that Kaaba in Mecca should be considered as the tombstone for the fallen at Gallipoli, and the blue sky as the dome of their tomb to be embellished with Pleiades, the constellation of seven sisters. Thus the poem, in memoriam of the Martyrs, unites Turkishness and Islam within a war epic. Uh, Now, this poem, dated 1924, uh, we observe a kind of Undercurrent narrative on Gallipoli developing related to this poem. And all the themes that poet mentioned are taken and reproduced, reused. (coughs) But interesting development took place in the 1990s. Starting from 1990s, mid-1990s, the Islamist parties became an integral part of the Turkish political spectrum especially election victory of the Islamist party that brought Tayyip Erdoğan to power as the mayor of metropolitan Istanbul in 1994, many of the attached boroughs, the cultural policies of the Islamist politicians, uh, became more visible in those boroughs. At this point, an important development took place. Islamist mayor of Zeytinburnu, a borough of Istanbul close to the airport, visited Australia, this country. During his trip, he visited Anzac monuments and shrines in Australia, and he tells his impressions in a speech delivered in 2016. Now, if you read this, uh, you notice that this poor fellow was shocked with the uh, Anzac uh, tradition in this country, and he tried to imitate this. And uh, he says, Australians are doing all this. Why aren't we interested in Gallipoli at all? Then I promised myself to do my best to keep Gallipoli and Gallipoli temperament close to Zeytinburnu, that's his borough. In the year of 2000, municipality of Zeytinburnu initiated its connection to Gallipoli. Later, later, this has become a state policy of Ankara. Now, Zeytinburnu is only five hours drive from uh, battlefields. And uh, Mr. Hayden's revelations are important in understanding the function of nationalism in modern times. Many social scientists perceive nationalism as something within the confines of the nation-state. That's wrong. In modern times, we develop, we redefine our nationalist sentiments or nationalist feelings by looking to the other. Let me tell you an anecdote. In 1980, I was a young assistant at the university, newly appointed, and d'etat happened. Turkish military intervened. And some of my friends, who were quite active in Turkish socialist movements, had to run away from the country. Most of them went to Germany. And three or four years later, the things became quite You know, he's down and so on, they returned. These were socialist international individuals. 80% of them returned as Turkish nationalists. Probably they were treated badly, discriminated in Germany because of their Turkishness, because of their religion, I don't know. But this has become something very important for me. Now, this guy, Mr. Aydin, comes to this country and has that tradition. And then he says, why don't we do the same? Starting from 2000, Uh, uh, Zeytinburnu was uh, sending uh, uh, coaches and buses to to, uh, Gallipoli battlefields. Uh, Bus tours began uh, uh, every year in April and run for four months. Every day, several busloads of people depart from the municipality. As Mr. Aydin disclosed to a Canadian journalist, the budget, budget allocated for these trips was about $350,000, American dollars, in 2015. According to Mr. Aydin's rough estimate, between 2000 and 2015, about 200,000 of his constituents have participated to the tours. Nearly two, uh, two out of every three pe- people living in Zeytinburnu. The mayor confessed that it could be an emotional trip. Some visitors say that that is something like a half pilgrimage to Mecca. Mr. Aydin added, they cry, they want to go back again. They empathize uh, with the, those who died. <coughs> now, these are photographs from my fieldwork, which I conducted uh, in April. Uh, I took them. Now, take a look at the uh, slogans written on the buses. I translated them. Uh, here, Mr. Iden reveals another dimension of the Islamist pilgrimage tours to Gallipoli. Rising against Islamist national narrative, rising Islamist national narrative, uh, glorifying death as sacrifice for a great cause. Martyrdom is exalted in every occasion. A Turkish psychologist, Serdar Baymenjulu, a professor of psychology, published an edited volume analyzing the Turkish attitudes related to martyrdom in 2014. In his article titled, Martyr Tourism Must Mobilization to Gallipoli, he underlines the fact that Gallipoli battles are now being portrayed as a victory of faith. In the Islamic narrative, there is the emphasis on dying for a larger uh, cause, and no doubt the battle is won only by dying in the battlefields. The slogans written on the buses are disclosing the underlying logic of these trips. The slogans like, Martyr, the youth is following your example, on the way to Gallipoli following the footsteps of (coughs) our ancestors are illuminating in that respect. Soon, other municipalities imitated Seytenburna. They started to send their uh, groups to Gallipoli by hiring coaches. Uh, And, uh, you know, it is not a big deal for a municipality rich enough to hire coaches, and put people in. But you need an individual to tell the story to them. They hired some interesting people, I mean, school teachers, religious uh, dignitaries, etc. They were sent with the bosses to the battlefields. Uh, and naturally, they were paid by the municipality. Look, for example, this is Mersin Municipality distributing those scarves. <coughs> These are the pilgrims at 57th Regiment Cemetery, taken this April. Uh, Zeytinburnu Municipality's mobilization of its constituents towards Gallipoli made its first pop-up on the secular nationalist press in the summer of 2004. Mainstream newspapers covered one incident from uh, from their first pages. Apparently a primary school teacher, Mr. Sefer Göstepe, was prosecuted because of his acting as a tourist guide and lecturing to a group from Bursa, without having the badge given to professional tourist guides. Now, in Turkey we have the group of professional tourist guides. They take a course for about a year. They travel all around Turkey, they, they see, they visit every archaeological site, and they are the ones who can do tourist guiding in Turkey. mean If you go there Turkey, to Turkey as a tourist uh, group, with a tourist group, you have one of these guys. And I mean, if you ask a question about Armenian genocide, they'll give you the state answer. I mean they're trained for that. And this is a very serious training. Some of my friends took that course. It takes about 14 months at the end, and it used to be a very lucrative business when I was young, not anymore nowadays. Uh, and uh, this primary uh, school teacher, acting as a tourist guide over there, was prosecuted uh, by the by the police authorities, and uh, you know he was. Uh, taken to uh, custody for some time and uh, then this was in the headlines of the mainstream media. Uh, one of the accusations was he was not mentioning the name of Kemal Atatürk was why he was telling the war narrative. Uh, according to Hurriyet Daly, his, he was telling mythologies and his mythologies were consisting of epic war sagas like 38 centimeters diameter projectiles far from Queen Elizabeth to the Turkish trenches were said to have been seized in the air by the Islamic saints who were supposed to be patrolling constantly over the Gallipoli Peninsula. Or a white cloud comes down from the blue sky and a British regiment vanishes mysteriously. Some long-bearded scents with white turbans and long green gowns made themselves visible to the infidel soldiers and they got scared and run away by leaving throwing their rifles. This was how the Army of Islam won the war in 1915. It's also mentioned that, in the coverage, Mr. Gostepe had said that Mustafa Kemal did not stay in the battlefield all the time. He was acting like a deserter managing the whole affair from the distance. Uh, he was prosecuted uh, and he was you know, charged imprisonment up to six years. I don't know what happened. I couldn't follow the news. Uh, this coverage must have created serious concern among the secular national circus in Ankara in order to counterbalance the Islamic mythology. A prominent writer, Turgut Özatman, wrote a kind of handbook of secular national narrative on Gallipoli in 2008. Now, here are the two major books. Look, Gallipoli is a legend, 100th edition, Armageddon at Gallipoli, 67th edition. And please multiply these editions with 2,500 copies. Their sale, their circulation is unbelievable. And these are the basics of the uh, Islamist narrative. And that's the secular nationalist version. That's uh, 132nd edition. It is secular, but the title is rather biblical, isn't it? Resurrection, Gallipoli, 1915. Uh, Starting from 2000, a kind of competition started with the secular nationalist uh, local governments competing with Islam. If they are doing, we better do the same. They were trying, inviting, uh, they were inviting their uh, constituents uh, to the busters, and they were taking them. You can understand from the, uh, you know, from these uh, posters. For example, they always have the photograph of Mustafa Kemal, and, uh, you know, Crescent and Star, and so on. I mean, that nationalist feeling could be felt. Yes. And second group, for example, look at this photograph, they are in Russell's Stop. Uh, they are secularist uh, Turkish uh, people visiting the battlefields. This is a very interesting photograph. This is taken uh, in... Uh, there is one centre they built four years ago uh, Gallipoli Legends Simulation Centers. It's like Madame Tussaud uh, type of thing. You, if you have been in London, you can feel the Battle of Trafalgar over there. Same is repeated at Gallipoli, and uh, many uh, primary schools are sending their kids there. And I took the photograph. She's a school teacher. Look at her hand. This is the signature of Kemal. Adam. Yes, uh, this coverage of 2004, August must have created a serious concern among the national circles circles in Ankara. And uh, uh, 18 months later, on March 2006, uh, Ministry of Environment and Forestry, where the battlefields are connected, National Park, issued a regulation code, The Selection, Training and Working Principles of the National Park Guides. The loose wording of the regulation did not give a direct reference to the uh, battlefields of Gallipoli. But, you know, uh, you can understand it if you read between the lines. Uh, the regulation established a new type of profession known as battlefield guides. The regulation mandated that if anyone wants to be trained as a guide, he or she had to live in the province of Chanakale, where Gallipoli Peninsula is located. This naturally eliminated a primary school uh, teacher coming from uh, central Anatolia and preached the uh, Islamist narrative. Okay? There had to be guys from, you know, uh, from the region. Uh, And uh, also, there has to be a kind of a course, a kind of a program educational program to be taken. Uh, and in the regulation mandated that this course, this instruction uh, would be coordinated by the Turkish uh, chief of staff. Lander. Therefore, the officers would come and teach whatever important. And I know, I talked to some of the uh, guys who talked there and who took you know, courses there. They said that they didn't, took the, uh, they didn't take the uh, covered girls to, th- to be the students because they said this is a serious matter. This is a state uh, show. I mean, you uh, cannot enter uh, to this classroom with this, uh, you know, covered head, and therefore they were kicked out. Uh, and uh, you know, it was good. It was a win-win situation for everybody, for Ankara. There was a memorized, you know, secular nationalist narrative. Some individuals were trained. They were going to tell this story to the ones who are visiting battlefields. And if you are a tour guide, you are becoming, you know, a kind of a, a person getting extra income. If, uh, the, you know, the, the, this battlefield area is a restricted zone, and if you enter with the bus, The police is stopping you, or gendarmerie. They say, "Uh, do you you have a battlefield guy? No. Okay, take this guy. And he was getting 150 liras per day and paying something like 25 liras as a tax. 125 is a day uh, money. It's not bad. If you do that 10 10 times in a month, that's uh, extra uh, money uh, for the family budget. Uh, but, when these things were implemented, when the, local, uh, when the uh, police and gendarmerie pushed the, uh, uh, the battlefield guides, then I'm sure some of the municipalities complained about, complained about this thing in Ankara. And something very interesting happened. The, Union of Professional Tourist Guides of Turkey legally declared that their reservations about the competence of battlefield guys and took the case to the Administrative High Court. Their argument was legally sound and reliable. They claimed that they were the designated professionals having a total monopoly to work in these touristic places. Therefore, these new battlefield guys with few weeks of training should be prevented working on Gallipoli. They asked the badges distributed should be cancelled and the regulation dated 28th of March 2006 to be declared null and void by the court. Now, that is serious. And there were about 695 battlefield guides who are graduates of that program. Uh, I followed the press what was going on. Uh, A local representative of Tourist Guides Association in Canakkaleh Uh, this is the official battlefield preaching at Anzac local representative of the union of professional tourist Guides at Gallipoli said 35% of them are active state temporaries doing this job for extra money by moonlighting the other 60 are either retired army officers or teachers interestingly in 2014 June, a new law passed in the Parliament. The battlefields used to be connected Ministry of Forestry as a park, then it was connected to Ministry of Culture. As a uh, new authority was formed, Gallipoli Battlefields Historical Park Authority. But the law passed in the Parliament did not mention. Battlefield guys, immediately their presence became legally non-existent. But there were 695 guys with, you know, badges and so on, they were making good money. Then, what happened? That's very interesting. Uh, This was a legal crisis. Battlefield guys first formed an association in order to act as a group to lobby in the ministries of Ankara. The title of their association was illuminating. The association of battlefield guides and devotion to Gallipoli martyrs. Now, in Turkish, Apparently, they tried to give the message to the politicians that they were ready to cooperate with the Islamist government. Although they were trained to preach the secularist narrative, they were ready to make modifications by putting special emphasis on the spiritually elevating teams as long as their legal status is secured. Second, they formed <coughs> groups and constructed web pages to advertise their trade. This is a typical web page of Battlefield Cats. Uh, uh, Having more than two millions of Turkish pilgrims visiting the battlefields every year, they had a rewarding market to benefit from. Third, they wanted this crisis to be resolved because, you know, there was a big market. A number of Turkish pilgrims would increase because the centenary of Gallipoli battles in the year of 2015 nearing. As the result of legal crisis, and through time, the battlefield guides started to serve according to the needs and demands of the market. If a municipality in Anatolia, run by an Islamist uh, politician, demanding, quote, spiritually uplifting tools, they were ready to provide it. If a tourism company from Istanbul asking for their, their elite customers to listen a secular nationalist narrative centered on on and around Yamaleta they were ready to deliver it too. In time, a kind of division of labor developed among the battlefield guys. I, I, I talked to some of them, they say, we receive a telephone. We ask, where are you calling from? A small municipality in the middle of East, uh, Anatolia. We ask, what kind of tour you want? With a lot of cries and tears or a plain one? They say a lot of cries and tears, and we tell if I'm in a position to deliver it, I do that. If I'm not, I tell my friend to do it. Now, uh, (laughs) never forget one thing. Uh, This, uh, being a battlefield guy, is acting like a performer, acting like an actor. For example, this is the uh, Battlefield Guide. You don't need to listen to the language. Look at his movements. I mean, he's acting and performing in all memorials cemeteries and the remnants of the trenches preaching their narrative. Jay Winter rightly argues that the memory is history seen through effect. The affective and sentimental part of their craft was probably more important than the historical details that they were giving. The performance of Battlefield guys is actually a performance of memory. It is a composition of acting in movement and gestures and some in implanted in speech the pilgrims, the Turkish pilgrims, would remember their guide's expressions as long as they are delivered theatrically with appropriate and accompanied movements of the body. Uh, For example, what he's talking about, I'll tell you. Uh, uh, He's saying that the poor Turkish soldiers in 1915, they were fighting hungry. They were not fed, they were having waters, some very light soup in the morning, and they were having uh, one bean in their mouth to circulate it, you know, to keep their uh, mouth busy, etc. This is the type of thing. And, uh, naturally, this is not enough. Uh, for instance, the ruling AKP Istanbul Party Headquarters has organized an annual Breaking the Fast Day program comprising the many of the Martis at the Gallipoli Martyrs Memorial in the holy month of Ramadan in 2012. That's it. You fast all day, this is the end of the uh, fasting day. By launching this program, a deliberate attempt is being made to increase Islamic sensitivity in relation to Gallipoli campaign. The program program consists of thousands of attendees breaking the Ramazan daytime fasting, this is the photo, and uh, with rye bread, cracked wheat soup, and water, followed by recitation of Quran and poems of nationalistic uh, type, like the one that I... uh. In, In the first program, in 2012, they invited guests from Palestine, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Bosnia, Albania, They were said to be the grandsons of the fallen soldiers from these Muslim countries. Uh, You know, it was a kind of a jihadist type of speeches delivered over there. And they were the ones, you know, coming all around these Muslim countries, you know, defending uh, the house of Islam against the uh, Crusaders. Now, this team of Crusaders actually pronounced by... Prime Minister Erdogan at that time. For example, he said, no one should try to say that crusades were this or that ever again. Crusades were not finished 9 centuries ago in the past. Do not forget, Gallipoli campaign by the Allies was a crusade. You yeah, know, this is the highest authority is repeating this. Uh, at this point, one should, one should recall some facts. I mean, All these places they mention, Baghdad or, or for example, this guy, uh, another uh, battlefield guy preaching uh, Islamist narrative, he's saying that all Arabs came together and joined to the uh, war effort at Gallipoli. They're presenting that as if, these were the American communists, got together during the Spanish Civil War, and joined to the Republican Front and fought against the Franco forces. This is not so. Excuse me, Palestine, Syria, Baghdad were Ottoman provinces. They were drafted to the army. It's so simple. They had to do that. Otherwise, they would have been deserters. I mean, now. Keeping Turkish borders as it is now and saying that from Baghdad they came, it's not serious. But this test of positivism doesn't mean anything at all at that Gallipoli battlefield. And second thing is as if allies attacked out of blue sky, excuse me, on 24. 9th of October, 1914, two battleships, formerly Gövin and Breslau, renamed Yawuz and Midili, went to the Black Sea and bombed Russian ports. And this initiated the war, excuse me. The Ottomans were not downtrodden victims of the imperialist conspiracy. They were the belligerent force. And let's take the jihadist argument. Okay, Army of Islam, good. The commander of the Fifth Army was a German, Lehmann von Sanders. And the Ottoman chief of staff was another German from Bronstein. And the war effort was financed by the Golden Deutschmarks of German Empire. What are we talking about? What kind of a jihad is that? It's a mockery. <laughs> uh, you know, when you add all these things together, uh, you can argue these things until the morning, but the, the argumentations wouldn't change. For example, you can say that, yes, they were having difficult time. It's not... Correct. I mean, Turkish army was very well fed while defending Galipoli. This is the head of 4th Infantry Division, Cemil Jonk. He tells, and the other officers give the menus. We know that they were well fed. But everything which is told by the battlefield guides has to fit somewhere in the Turkish nationalist ideology that we are victims, we are downtrodden, we have been penalized by the, uh, you know, uh, imperialists or by the crusaders, etc. (coughs) Now, let's come to the last bit. In every uh, incident when the pilgrims, when the Anzac pilgrims go to Gediwoli, I was in uh, the down service this year. So it starts around 11 o'clock. They so they show you documentaries and so on. Probably some of you had, uh, had, uh, participated to that uh, gathering. And religiously sensitive part is not more than half an hour. Uh, a minister gives a very secular uh, understanding of uh, religion. And it ends around 6, 6.30 in the morning. Then what happens uh, from Anzac Cove to John Player, Youngsters climb all these hills. They feel the burden of their grandfathers, and they go with backpacks, okay? But in those days, the two diggers, you know, were climbing those things under the machine gun fire, cycles, and, and everything. Doing that is a kind of reenactment. This has started quite early uh, by the Americans in, Gettys- in Gettysburg. I mean, if you want to feel the sense of American Civil War, you can go to Gettysburg, get a uniform for yourself, confederate, you know, hat and the rifles produced for this purpose. You can do even a charge and you pay money for that. Now the Islamists uh, Politicians, you know, some the Anzacs climbing the wrong pine, then to jump by here, where the New Zealand uh, monument is. They said, "Come on, we have the 57th Regiment. Okay, we should do the same." This is the village for Jetera. They formed the Boy Scout Camping. and this is the camp I visited. Uh, it's a huge thing. Uh, it can, I mean, this year they had 1,950 boys, uh, about uh, um, youngsters, uh, about 1,000 girls, youngsters, and something like 950 postdocs located there for three days' program. Now, Okay, these are the highlights of the program. Recitation of the traditional poem of 15th century Mevrut, Praise of the Birth and Life and Miracles of Prophet Muhammad, recitation of hymns, praying together at least three times a day, the show of traditional Ottoman military pants, lecture from a public orator, Mr. Bekir, Bekir Develi, He's always on TV talking about martyrs, etc. And recitation of the good old poem of Mehmed Akif. This is a kind of a you know, religiously intensified program for two days. And these are the West distributed. Grandpa, here I am, and they are walking. Now I finish with a Roll call, which was shown on Turkish TV in April 2015. President Erdogan is reciting the poem. Ways the uh, dominant way of commemorating, actually, when I say dominant, this is coming from the state's uh, perspective. <coughs> also, the other is uh, going on, and uh, this is a kind of a contest. Therefore, I call this type of title, I put the title of my talk, Pathogens of Nanarchists. Who will we not do? Uh, but both time.
1: Thank you for your patience. Thanks very much, Professor Aksan, for this uh, terrifically vivid talk with deep historical context, um, which I think we all learned a lot from. We're running a little behind, but it doesn't matter. We're running on Australian time, which means it's very flexible. And uh, we stayed on, well, at least for 20 minutes of discussion. I'm going to take three questions at a time. So raise your hand, or we'll bundle them, and then Professor Akhtar can respond. If you have a question, why don't you say who you are, if you have an institutional affiliation? Apparently, they being recorded, so we all want like best behaviour. So, uh, let us fire away if you have a question. Someone has yes.
2: In the last... Uh uh, clip. The m- clips that you have shown. I, uh, this was shown
0: in all, st- all states and uh, private channels in Turkey. Uh,
2: one of the guys, one of the soldiers was Greek, Anton
0: Nikola. That's a difficult thing. Uh, it, Anton could be uh, Jewish too. Uh, yeah, but
2: like a non Muslim, clearly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, his yeah.
0: inclusion in there, <coughs> Anton meaningful. was in a very circular Islamic context. So yeah, also there were there uh, Kurds from Erbil, you know. Uh, for that reason, this is a really different thing from the uh, secular nationalistic perception. I mean, they tried to integrate Arabs, Kurds, and others, and were non-Muslims. Uh, you know, a funny name, you cannot determine Anton Nikola. It's complicated, but it's
1: there. It's
0: there, you're right. Thanks for noticing.
1: So, uh, gentlemen, then the lady...
3: from the army or from Paula amongst um, what was the panoramic soldiers? It was the first time to talk after 1911. Yes. This narrative that's been created oh, you mentioned with the one that mentioned about a crusade, that the crusade got over. How does that
2: then play out with our attitudes towards to go to the, um, the, the, the that changing those attitudes they, you know,
1: becoming more of an <laughs> Yes
2: Yes, and thank you very much for your lecture, very interesting I I was fascinated by the way nationalism mobilises at different times in history secular and uh, Islamist identities uh, but most importantly in the in operation in the ideological operation you described, it seems like a kind of brainwashing of young students and it looks like there is not a background before what is happening in the transmission of history. Because you know I can understand that they do that to young kids, but they are training others teachers of history mm. who presume, who I assume were formed in the decades before, but something went wrong. I mean, I
1: I don't understand
0: that's a question. Okay. Uh, Let me start with the last one. Uh, As I told you, the uh, 1930s approach was secular nationalistic and uh, it was telling the premises of uh, military history with some adjustments according to the Turkish nationalist perspective. Uh, But in the Islamist one, you don't need history actually. Yeah, you can tell the dates correct. No problem. Uh, but what you tell is a is, is, uh, fact, sentiment. And, uh, you tell the story, yes, they died, and by dying they defended, and they presented this country to us. We should feel grateful. I and mean, that's, the, that's the bottom line. There's a
1: language of martyrdom in the secular version too. Expedition. The language of martyrdom also in the secular... No, it's not. So that's a, the language of martyrdom. Is
0: exactly. I mean, uh, okay. I mean uh, when, when, when you listen the Isaac narrative, I mean, uh, maybe 20, 20 minutes of uh, uh, religious one, but that's a civic religion. Okay? Here, it is not. It is a jihadist-Islamist narrative. Uh, how about the uh, I mean if the, uh, if the Turkish state authorities uh, portray the uh, allies as crusaders, what will happen to the Australians? As far as I see, nothing will happen uh, What? A-
2: Like crusaders
1: uh, as well, always uh, kids go there and climb up the hill. Uh, yeah, they are the grand
0: grandsons of crusaders, okay. Uh, but uh, or granddaughters of crusaders. Uh, but uh, recently the peninsula became extremely sensitive in terms of security. I mean, this year there was a whole regiment. I I talked to the officers. They said yesterday we moved from Bigar to here. There was a whole region. And the number of Anzacs were about 1,200 this year. I mean, very small. Because of also the fear related to ISIS, etc. You asked about desertion. Ottoman army had the highest records of desertion. The second were the Russians, I suppose. Nearly, I mean, They were able to draft 2,850,000 men to the army in four years. Okay, and half a million of them deserted, mostly taking their rifles with them, and therefore, in Anatolia, there were nearly half a million people armed. That means something.
1: On that optimistic note, here in the philosophy room, the philosophy room of the University of Sydney. Thank you.